So to make the internet a better place, I think us marketers really, really need to get with that person, understand the person, and then help them along their journey. And, and that might mean you, you use pop-ups, right? Because you know that they need the thing to help them along their journey. Bonjour, bonjour. Welcome to everyonehatesmarketers.com. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. EveryoneHatesMarketer.com is a podcast for digital marketers who are sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I interview no-nonsense marketers who are not afraid to cut through the bullshit and say things as they are. So during this show, we learn how to get more visitors, more leads, more customers, more long-term profit by using good marketing, by treating people the way we like to be treated. Uh, head over to everyonehatesmarketers.com to subscribe to the email list. Uh, we'll, be, we'll notify you before anybody else of our future guests. Uh, you'll also help us to come up with great questions for the future guests. Uh, you'll also get access to uh, the numbers in terms of number of listens and downloads of the podcast. And also, quite simply, to have great one-to-one -one conversation if you need any help. Today, I'm interviewing Tom Hunt. He's the founder of Sneeze.io, which is a tool to encourage customers to share their own content about a brand on Spotify. So Tom has a very interesting story. He started a male leggings company called Stitch Leggings in 2012. He got featured in Dragon's Den and then went on to create a virtual assistant company called Virtual Valley, which he sold 90% of in 2014. So here's the full disclosure about this episode. It's actually one of the first episodes I recorded, and that was a few months ago already, before I actually officially launched the podcast. So the format was slightly different. And at the time, Tom was working on a product called Ask Tina, and then transformed into Sneeze a few weeks after we talked. So... The first half of the podcast episode, we are talking about his entrepreneurial journey and how he left his job to create all of those companies. And then the second half, we are talking about marketing BS, why newsletters need to die. He's also sharing a framework to launch projects. We'll also discuss whether or not you should be a specialist or you should be a generalist in marketing. Uh, so have a listen and let me know what you think. Hi, Tom. Hi, Louis. How are you? Pretty good. Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Pleasure. I'm so excited. Are you? <laughs> yeah. All right. I actually, um, when you reached out to me and saying you're doing a podcast just on transparent marketers, it actually like, felt a warm feeling in my heart. I have a passion. <laughs> I'm very passionate about this. Maybe a bit too much, but I'm sure we're going to talk about that later. And I have the same passion than you. So I think it's going to be fun. Right. So let's get started with the first question. What is better? Is it to wear leggings or actually to run a business selling, uh, selling leggings? Wearing leggings or run a business selling leggings? I yeah. think running a business selling leggings because then you can wear leggings while you're doing it, right? Um, because that's basically what me and my two co-founders do is we just wear leggings every day and then we sell them on the internet. Uh, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the leggings business, man. Like, uh, sh Shall I tell you very briefly like how it started? Please, yeah. Like, really fast. So. From age zero to age 22, I didn't do anything entrepreneurial. And then we wanted to chat to girls on Brick Lane Market in London. And we, we thought, because we, we were too shy to do it. So like, if we had a market store selling something remarkable, we'd be able to talk to the girls. Um, so we're like, okay, let's, let's, set, let's sell male leggings. So we bought some female leggings from eBay, drew a male logo on them, and then started a market store on Brick Lane Market trying to sell them. Sold none in eight hours. I don't think we spoke to any girls either. Uh, and obviously spent a lot of money on the market store. <laughs> but, then we, but then we were like, okay, let's set up an e-commerce store. 
and we did that and then started selling them online. So that's how this whole thing started in 2012. Uh, and since then, yeah, I've just spent like a lot of time basically messing up, losing money, spending a lot of time. And things like started to work after like two years. And now I've actually done some, some stuff. Well done. <laughs> so let's let's dig deeper into the before all of that, right? So you mentioned you didn't really do anything entrepreneurial before until you started this mail leggings company, yeah. right? So you were a consultant, right? Yeah, so I studied chem I got a master's in medicinal chemistry from Imperial College in London. I realized I didn't want to work with chemicals, I wanted to work with people. So then I went to work for Ernst Young and then Accenture in management consulting. Never really enjoyed it. I enjoyed like the social side and like working with people, but then I didn't really give a shit. I, was, I didn't really care about, I'm not sure if we can swear on this podcast. Oh, we can. Please we do. Can, I really, of course, be transparent. But yeah, I, I didn't care about the work. And so it was after a year of working for Anthony Young, we started the leggings company. And then after that, I started spending like far too much of my time building, like basically learning online marketing. Um, and it got to the point where I was working for Accenture like two hours a day. I probably shouldn't say this, but I was working for Accenture <laughs> two hours a day. And then the rest of my day was literally building these businesses that eventually allowed me to leave Accenture um, and learn how to sell things online, how to help people online, right? Which is the same as selling things. Um, did you did you get fired from Accenture or did you leave? No, from man, I, I left. So I, I had it was so sweet, man. Like I had. In, the, in these massive corporations, you, you can actually be, if you manage it well, you can get promoted fast and not, and still get stuff done, but not you know, like in a minimal amount of time, right? So I got promoted before other people in my year group, um, but I was probably working average three hours a day because I had a team in India that was doing most of my work through, through Accenture and, and my managers weren't like there with me they just trusted me to get stuff done and I was getting stuff done but it's just other people were doing it or I was being efficient um so no like I had to hand in my notice and they like offered me more money to stay uh but I had this I replaced my salary with this other business on the side so you 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 replace your salary with this male leggings business no, right no, so no. The, the male legging thing has all it's only ever been part-time like a few hours a week okay um because my other two founders are still like working in the corporate world, they're still happy doing that. So we, they, it's, it's really a hobby. But then I decided that this is what I, what did I want, what I wanted to do, and then started uh, an outsourced service company. So I was just connecting startups in London that couldn't afford to hire people onshore with a team that I built in the Philippines. I'd been working in outsourcing as a consultant, um, and so I just was connecting these startups. They pay like a monthly rate for the person in the Philippines, so it includes some of my time to work on like their processes and outsourcing systems as I learned from the corporate world. That's the business that enabled me to leave. Okay, so is this business still running or did you? No, so very, this is a very interesting lesson. I realized when we had six clients, and I was still investing my time in each client that I'd basically built myself a job and I was now officially self-employed. I was no longer an employee. I'd taken the next step to, to building my own system that I was still very much a part of and therefore self-employed. And I realized that if I was going to build anything significant and help more people, then I would need to become an entrepreneur, right? And rise above the system. So as I left, pretty much as I left Accenture, I realized this and started building the next iteration of that business, which was called Virtual Valley, which was a marketplace that would effectively do the same thing, but provide software to track the time of the Filipino virtual assistant. And therefore, I wouldn't be directly involved in the, the act of provisioning the service. So and you were in charge of, like, you launched this business two years ago, was it? So the outsourced service business started in, it would have been 2014. 
And we ran that for a year before I realized it like left Accenture. Then I realized that I, I needed to build a system. I needed to become, or I wanted to become an entrepreneur. So Virtual Valley was launched at the start of 2015. Um, no, at the start of 2015, only at the start of this year. I was thinking about this last night. So we launched Virtual Valley at the start of this year. Okay. And then we sold it. I sold it in October, not for a massive amount. I sold 90% of it in October um, to, I actually can't reveal who it is yet, but 90% of it has been sold uh, to a marketing company in the US. And now I retain 10% and I have started another project. Very good. Yeah, we'll talk about this in your project because it's quite interesting. But just to let you know, when I was looking for, like looking at your profile and discovering what you were doing, I, I came across Virtual Valley and... Mm-hmm. Complete disclosure: You didn't ask me to do anything. I lit, I signed up because I needed really? uh, people to ha- to help me in uh, building outreach campaigns. Sure. And we are working with two virtual oh, assistants. Yeah, we are working with two virtual assistants from uh, from your service, and they're very good. Me really happy. Yeah, uh, because uh, and what this is a lesson I think is that when you if you can build a system that operates without you, like I didn't even know that happened, right? Because I only own ten percent now. I invest like ten hours a month. But we have my manager who's based in the Philippines, like running business. So it, the lesson here is if you are, if you want to become an entrepreneur, you have to get someone who is awesome, who will like manage the whole system for you um, so that things like this can happen. Like you've helped out your friend and you didn't even know it. Like that's so amazing. I'm, I'm very grateful for that, Louis. No problem. You know, it's just, I need to try things when I sure. interview the right people, right? I need course, to know yeah. what products they're selling. Right. So you sold this business, at least 90% of it, and now you're starting this new adventure. Tell me more about this. Yeah. So we, what happened? It was actually, as I was speaking in like May, virtually had only been launched for like four months and it was growing quite nicely. And of course, like all the numbers on the blog, right? The transparent thing. Um, I was talking with an advisor and he, he was, he's really passionate about what was called an invisible app. You have an interface into some service provision. And I actually got really excited about this because two years previously, I'd spoken with a Telegram bot. And I was like, this is the future. Like, it's so cool how you can interact with the computer in a messaging service. So we started building what we wanted originally to be a virtual assistant invisible app. So you would speak to Tina, who would then delegate the task to a freelancer. But you wouldn't see that. You'd just get the task done. You'd, and Tina would do the task. So we started building that in April, like launched a product hunt and got paying customers and investor interest in like it, it, from idea to launching was three weeks. And then two weeks after that, we had investor in, interest in paying customers. It was amazing. And so over the summer, I worked on getting funding. And now we are part of an accelerator here in London. Uh, they gave us a small amount of money that's going to run out actually in December. Then we're going to have to either raise more or eat like bread and butter um but but well with, with tina has she has uh evolved definitely since that model so she's no longer the invisible virtual system but we can talk about more about that later yeah i mean like so that's what i checked when when i first checked like, what you were doing and and asked uh, ask tina.io i that's what i saw but like tell yeah. me more about what is it now and briefly yeah i think this is again an amazing lesson for people listening is in the if you're building like a business as a proven business model, like a marketing agency, like you, if cool, there it, it can be stressful, but you don't really have to go through the, the bullshit, right? That we've had to go through, like what we we're trying to build before was not proven. And therefore we try something 
and it would start not to work and be like, oh my God, this is not going to work. And so you tweak it slightly and you just make these changes based on feedback. And so this has happened. Like we've had that cycle like four times and it's like an absolute roller coaster of emotions. But we finally, it sort of converged upon the current model that we have. And the, the, the conversion or, or this journey has been defined by us trying to answer that one specific question. That specific question is how can you automate interactions between a human and a robot that actually work and add value to the human. Mm -hmm. And the, the answer to that question, like we don't know the actual answer, but we think the answer is to uh, gather enough interactions. Right? So if you have a million interactions, you can then use that information. At least it's going to be easier to use that information to automate something that, that works in a couple of years. Like we know that for sure. So the question then became, how do we gather the data and still have a viable business model and a company that we want to run? And so the way we're going to do that now is by providing software to people that have an expertise in a specific vertical. Currently, that vertical is growth, so building small online businesses, um, providing software that allows them to charge for their advice. Okay. And so a customer would come to the website of the expert. There'd be a widget, kind of like Intercom, but with re reverse billing, right? You pay to use the chat widget as opposed to the company paying for the chat widget software. Um, and you can enter into a, into a chat where they would give advice. And so we're going to have thousands of these widgets on some of the websites, collecting all this data, putting it into our database. Yet, so we can do something in the future, but we still have this viable, in theory, or at least another show, us having a viable business model in the short term, taking a percentage of the, the billing. <laughs> So that kind of is what Tina is, but we've only been working on that for two weeks. Uh, so <laughs> maybe in four weeks it's going to change again. Yeah. So yeah, we actually think that we're like we're very we're, we're much more confident uh, here, and we have a time limit, right? Like we ha we have to stop experimenting at some point. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, but it sounds really interesting. So it's basically instead of like there is a lot of experts online where where you can actually you know spend thirty minutes on Skype with them and pay. Yeah certain amount, right? So you would basically replace the Skype calls with an actual chat interaction. Correct. So like Clarity.fm, which is an amazing site. Um, but for chat. But through conversational interface, right? And, and so you have it, a plan for long term as well, which is interesting. Correct. Which is, yeah, that's like the, the golden nugget for the investors, right? They, they want to know how you can sort of have a SaaS model with 85% margins, mm. um, yet still provide service. To come back to the, the point you made saying that you're basically like you're not working with a proven business model, you need to invent everything. I think it comes back to what Steve Blank is calling, you know, a new product in a new market. You mm -hmm. have to not only experiment and talk to customers and potential customers, but you have to spend an, a crazy amount of time educating the market and a crazy yeah. amount of resources to educate the market. And he's making the point that basically even like when you're first, it doesn't mean that it's an advantage because you have Correct. to spend a lot of money educating people. And then the second or third person, third company could come in and just exactly do it a little uh, better and read the rewards. For sure. And this it is massive. It's so inefficient to have to A, persuade someone to use your thing or influence someone to use your thing, but then also educate them on why they should be using it, right? And this is really going to be a massive challenge for us. Um, how we get people to pay uh, an acquisition cost that makes it worthwhile for us to build a business. And we haven't proven that yet. Um, so yeah, you're right. This is probably one of the biggest challenges we're going to come up against. Yeah, I'm sure you'll do something. I'm sure you'll, <laughs> you'll solve it. To talk a little bit more about you and, and not your business, but you, 
how do you pay yourself at the minute? Is it from the, the investments you got from the incubator? Yeah, so we, we currently have a salary uh, through Alftina. We can, I have taken money from the leggings company. I, I do get money from Virtual Valley. Is that it? Oh yeah, then obviously I sold, I got a significant, not a massive, not a life-changing amount when I sold the Virtual Valley business. So that is, can help us sustain with Tina if we don't raise that round in December. Um, but ideally, wouldn't have to. All right. Um, this is a question I ask during interviews when we hire new people. And I love it because it actually goes to your soul. If you answer the question <laughs> truthfully, it actually really, yeah. you know, goes to the soul. So is there any particular event that happened in your life that made you who you are today? Why are you here today? Yeah. Great question, man. Uh, yeah. Like the, the answer to that question is there definitely is. And I'm going to sort of wait and see if any come to, to fruition. Yeah. I think it's probably a, an interesting one. I remember there was, it was a time. Yeah. Yeah. I have it. Right. So it was at the start, we just started the leggings business. That was the end of 2012, 2012. So December, 2012, we had the market store and it was the 2nd of January, 2013. I'd just been to Oslo for New Year's Eve with my now ex-girlfriend and it, like it didn't go very well. It was clear that we we're going to break up. So like down or whatever, like upset all that. And I was like walking home from Liverpool street to a house in Olgate East in London. And it's like raining really hard. And I was faced with going back to Accenture like the next day to work. Um, and I was like, basically fuck this. Like I'm not, this is not how I want to like live my life. Like probably influenced by the fact that that hadn't gone well with the ex-girlfriend. Right. Um, I was like, I'm going to change, I need to change this, right? So it was on that day that I wrote down that I'm going to leave Accenture by the 21st of December, 2013. So I had like the whole year because I had some, I'd only been marketing online for like two months, right? And so that, it was that moment, like that decision really that was made walking home and then writing down that goal and putting it in like the top door of my desk that I think definitely enabled me to leave Accenture at the end of that year. Um, and then set me on this journey of investment of time and money in learning online marketing, which has allowed me to do this other stuff, like allow me to build and sell virtual value in nine months, allowed us to sell more leggings and allow us to raise money for Tina. So that, and you say it was an event or a moment, it was really a decision, which I think is empowering for people to listening, right? You don't need to have something bad happen or something good happen in your life. It's like, it's really up to you to, make that choice if you're not happy with something. And then once you do make that choice, again, it's up to you to do something about it. I think it's uh, Tim Ferriss who mentioned something on those lines. He's saying that your life is measured by the number of decisions you're making. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's very easy to not take, make any decisions in yeah. your life. You know, you just let things go. And mm -hmm. the more decisions you take, the faster you go. Even if you're making mistakes, you will learn from it and move quicker than most people. Yeah, exactly. Um, the, 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 for me, the, the crucial thing, if someone in, that, in the same situation, of they're doing something that they don't want to do and they want to change things, the, the biggest shift you can take to allow you to change things is to stop caring what other people think about you. Like going through that journey during that year 2013, like obviously all of my friends and my family were like, what are you doing with all your time? Like why are you spending so much time like on the computer? Like let's go for drinks or let's go out. Um, you really have to let go of the, the, the opinions of other people, if you're going to sort of do something different and like make an impact. 
and so that's what I'd be aware of if someone's trying to make the same journey. Are your parents entrepreneurs at all, or are they? Nope. No. So no one. Uh, so yeah, no one in my family has been entrepreneurial. Like my dad, at one point, started his business for like three years when we were younger. But apart from that, no. Like, and none of my friends were. I, I credit this, the change or this shift, largely to the internet um, and the information that I've been able to consume for free, right? Because everything's free out there. Like how I, I'm a big believer that you can, you're very, everybody's very sus more susceptible to the environment than they think. And you can brainwash yourself into doing things, right? So during that year of 2013, I'd only listen to like Joe Rogan or I'd only listen to like marketing podcasts like this, right? This is why I love coming on podcasts, why I love doing our virtual value podcast is because we're brainwashing people to be able to make that or to be more likely to make that change to like do really cool things. So again, it's the decision to, to like stop consuming the information. Like that's not going to help you make the change and to sort of change your information diet. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, I'm just thinking now that you're talking, you're like yeah, inspiring sure. me to do things. You're like, oh, what? Thanks, man. <laughs> uh, right. Go coming back to what you mentioned about transparency. So just for the listeners out there, we will obviously share all of the resources uh, that you mentioned in the podcast notes so they will be able to look at the websites. But you were sharing your revenue with uh, virtualvalley.io. Why did you take this, this decision? This is an interesting one. It, it was, so I, okay, I'll explain the situation. So January the 10th of this year, And we're about to launch this platform. Actually, actually December. Like I had, it was being built and it was going to launch in January. So I had all of December to decide how we're going to market to the demand side to the entrepreneurs. And didn't have much money. The only thing, and I wanted to make like try and make a big splash. The only thing that I thought that we could do, the only angle that we could take, was to try and be the most transparent out of anybody. And I was a massive fan of transparent blogs, like. The Hubstaff blog, WP Curve, I've seen there, and Basecamp as well, I think. And I've seen like meteoric success with this content. And so I was like, okay, how can we take this one step further? What information is going to be useful to the people that would use Virtual Valley? And so we, we started this whole campaign about like going from zero nothing to selling the company for $4 million dollars and trying to document everything. I, I wasn't sure if anybody had been like that transparent on the whole journey, like from absolute nothing to getting to one to selling for $4 million. dollars. Um, so really, it was like how I, I kind of was stuck with no other choice. So yeah, it was driven by two things. What what did the person that I was targeting want to consume on the internet? What information? And I thought because I like the information, other people like me who use virtual assistants would like the information as well. But it was also about I didn't really have any other choice to build a popular blog because I didn't, like I had to do content marketing because I didn't have money. I only had my time and. I had to write something that people that would be remarkable and that people could get behind. I, th I think we did do that. Like you, you can see the numbers on the blog. Like we at this point, we're not making like nearly enough to sell for $4 million, right? We're on that journey. But I was very honest about that journey. And like we basically, if I was to draw the revenue graph, it was like January and it was going up and like April was awesome. When I say awesome, it was like $2,000 revenue. So like not like massive, But for a marketplace, like as a solo non-technical founder building a double-sided marketplace, like I was very happy with that. But then it started going down, like May went down and then June went down because at this point we launched Tina in April, right? So I was running both of them. 
and it was like going down but i still tried to be like brutally honest about why it was going down and like i think i even included like complaints from customers on the blog to show why just so i'd try and maximize the amount of learnings that people got from the blog and therefore they'd have the fear of an authority and they come and hire better assistance <laughs> ultimately and uh, did you see any limits to being transparent there was one i got one email from a customer or potential customer saying I'm not sure if I would want to use your service because I know that you're going to sell the business after two years. I, only one, right? In loads of emails from customers. That means there was probably a much greater number thinking about or that didn't use it because of that because most people wouldn't email in. But still, I think the benefits far outweighed those lost customers. Yeah, you wouldn't be talking in this podcast. Exactly. <laughs> um, exactly. But- Let's talk more about marketing now. So mm-hmm. the, these, the, the listeners would mainly be digital marketers. Mainly they would be sick of the marketing bullshit out there. They mm-hmm. would be willing to, you know, they want to be big. They want to become better marketers. They want to help their companies to grow mm-hmm. and they want to do that ethically, right? They don't want to interrupt people or just manipulate them mm-hmm. and tricking them into what they don't want or, or shoving them, you know, shoving ads into their face day to day. So let's, in this part, we'll try to like dig into what you would, you know, say to digital marketers to actually be, become better marketers and, and yeah. grow. Um, when was the last time you cried after seeing a bad website? <laughs> when was the last time? Like our, our, our Tina website was pretty shocking recently. Uh, I didn't cry there. Um, who, which one have I seen as bad? Hmm. I don't want to be horrible to anybody. Oh, you don't have to name, like. Don't have to name them. Like sometimes, yeah. Like I, I don't cry. If I see a bad website, I just, turn, I, I just, it like bounce like straight away. Like, What's like, a bad my... website for you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh what, what defines a bad website? Yes. I think it's not understanding who I am, right? So you, you go to a website and they're so like bland. It, they could speak to like I could be anyone, right? But when I land on a page and I feel like they're talking to me, I feel like they know me, then that I'm not bouncing, right? Even that's, if they're designed to be a shit. That's a good point. Right? And, and one of the, the other guests in the podcast mentioned the, uh, about the copy. He mentioned, I think it's John Doherty from uh, getcredit.com who mentioned mm-hmm. that um, one of the skills that digital marketers should have and they, they seem not to have too much is copywriting. The mm-hmm. ability to actually talk to the person behind the screen, the ability to yeah. connect with this person. Yeah, I think this is the Dane Maxwell has an amazing quote where he says, the abundance in my life increases with the with my copywriting skills. They're saying that the more I can write words that influence people for the better, like the better my life will be, which is so true. And if you're a digital marketer and you're not working on your copywriting skills, like your value to the marketplace is severely limited because let's face it, everything you're gonna be doing pretty much it's going to be writing words to influence people. So where it's like your tweet, your Twitter bio, the headline on your site, the subject line in your email. So I think that's the, if there's one skill for any online marketer who wants to improve their sales or improve their value to the marketplace, is to invest in copywriting that has the highest leverage on your success as a marketer. What uh, con- conventional wisdom or best practices that you see out there are completely wrong or you think these <laughs> are completely wrong in digital marketing? Again, great question. The one I, there is a, a massive hate point for me, I think it's the newsletter. Right? And I wrote a blog post me like, no one wants to read your fucking newsletter. And, but like, 
to be honest, any any real online marketer, and I, I like to call, I think there are three types of, I'm going on right now, there are three types of marketers online. It's like a digital marketer who, in my eyes, like works for an agency, like never has actually sold anything themselves. Uh, startup marketer who, it's actually getting better, like startup marketing, marketing world is like converging more to the next one, which we'll talk about in a second. But this is someone who, uh, again, does market, like study marketing at uni and then worked, went to work in marketing at a startup that's never really sold anything themselves. And then the online marketer who has a background in selling things that are not differentiated, like make money online products or whatever. But, but, and therefore, they're not like the startup marketer that has an awesome product to sell, therefore their job is easy. They're selling shit, right? And so that means that if you're selling, the product you're selling is not that great, you have to be fucking really, really down and sharp with the technical skills like conversion rates, copywriting, right? And influencing for the sale. So I have my background, what I was learning in these first few years was like online marketing, like selling shit, like not thumb spamming, like nothing, like not unethical, like the things that I'm selling, I would buy myself. So not like literally shit, but still things that are not differentiated, right? Like make money online courses that were good, but it's not like your new piece of technology that yeah. no one's ever used for. So um, I think that these are the people that I like talking to online marketers because they, they just seem sharper. So, so back to my point about the thing that I, that is the conventional wisdom that I see that I think is bullshit is the newsletter, right? And I think that startup marketers and online mar- and digital marketers <laughs> are more likely to have a newsletter because it's just like, this is what you do, right? You collect emails, you newsletter, but then no one gives a fuck about the newsletter. They give a fuck about themselves. And so you need to collect the email and give them something that they actually care about, right? So I, I'll just give an example. on With Tina, where we were sort of trying to attract people that wanted growth advice, I just wrote two 3K blog posts, 3K web blog posts that just outlined how we got early startup traction, how we went from zero to 1K visits a month, and how we went from zero to 10K, although we didn't quite get 10K, we got 8K. Um, but the lead magnets in those blog posts, the only lead magnets were the templated emails that, I, that we actually used in our campaigns. So one was a guest blogging outreach email, one was a cold email to, I can't remember who, and one was another email template. And so they were just embedded within the blog post. Like there was the image of the template, but it was blurred out and you click on it and the lead box comes up. And we got great conversion on those because we were giving value up front and then to take the next step to get the thing that they could immediately use that was very simple they just had to give us the email address, right? So that's an example, my opinion, of a better way to collect the lead than offering the bullshit newsletter that no one cares about. I think that's a good point. Like it's about, and you mentioned that before, you need to focus on the people you are trying to sell to. You need to understand mm-hmm. them and put them, put yourself in their shoes. And if you think about the what, like, oh, we need a mailing list, oh, we need a newsletter, mm-hmm. oh, we need a new website, then you're wrong because marketing is about understanding people, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So if you don't understand them and just think about you and this is what we need to do for them, then it's not going to work. Yeah. Um, what, so we mentioned, we mentioned like bad websites. We mentioned mm-hmm. not thinking about, uh, about value. I think there is an issue with internet in general. I think, and we think in slices that internet is polluted with, ads that you don't want to see mm-hmm. with like a lot of interruption, a lot of pop-ups, a lot of exit pop-ups, a lot of chat pop-ups, a lot of everything. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot of pages that are very heavy to load and very difficult to read. 
while in 1997 HTML was very simple, right? It was much mm. actually much faster than today. So mm. I think as marketers, we all have a role to play in to make internet a better place. And what would be your advice for marketers to help to make the internet better? That's a great question. Like I'm not, a lot of people are anti-pop-up, anti-exit pop-up. I'm actually not anti-exit pop-up if the people actually want what you're trying to give them, right? And so you look at the conversion rates of these things. And if you're getting like, on just a normal pop-up, if you're getting like 0.5%, then I probably, it probably means the user experience is bad, right? Because they don't actually want the thing. So I'm not going to say take down your pop-ups. I think it goes back to even what you're doing on the podcast, right? Like you lifted out, you, you told me before who listens to this podcast, right? And then you've even repeated it in the podcast, like the people who, who you're targeting. So to make the internet a better place, I think us marketers really, really need to get with that person, understand the person, and then help them along their journey. And, and that might mean you, you use pop-ups, right? Because you know that they need the thing to help them along their journey. Where, where it goes wrong is when you're thinking about your own agenda and like the goals that you need to hit, like your own internal intention and not thinking about other people's internal intention. So what it really comes down to is getting to know that person and then helping them on the, along the journey. I think your position is better than I would have ever put it. And that's, that's when in Slices we were starting to think about that last year, talking about uh, why are we actually interrupting people online? Why are we so not caring about what people think? And it comes down to exactly, as you mentioned, it comes down to gains. It comes down to we need to reach our quarter targets. We need to make yeah. more money next week. So fuck that. Let's just launch this, uh, send this other email mm-hmm. or launch this other pop-up. Um, one point I want you to make about the exit pop-up. I don't have, I think, I think pop-ups could be good, as you mentioned. Um, mm-hmm. the, the only thing I would advise marketers to do is to not only look at the conversion rates, but also look at the quality of the leads coming in. Yeah. Um, because sometimes, even though the number of leads would go up, mm-hmm. the, the, the level of qualification of each lead will go down and therefore yeah. it just, it evens out. Um, that's a, it's a massive, that's a, that's a very advanced point to make. So thank you, Louis. Like, and, and to enable that, you need segmentation on opt-in. So you need to know, you have, you have a different form for every opt-in. Yeah. And then you need to know, and then you need to track that in your theorem or responder open rates and click-through rates, right? So that, I think that's something to measure. And the other thing in Google Analytics that you can't see is the impact that it has on your trust, on trust. Yeah, emotions. A lot of people who don't input their email address would just see it and say, you know what? I fucking hate those. I'm not going to come back to this website. Well, yeah. Those people you will never hear from. Mm-hmm. And they never recommend you. They'll never refer you. They'll never talk about you or yeah. at least posit- positively. So, you know, this is much harder to measure. So I, that's why I think we're only always thinking about being careful with those. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, like, and that's just the dilemma that any marketer has, right? You, you can't get that qualitative information about qualitative feedback on what you're doing. Right? Unless you talk to every customer, that's not possible. So, yeah, yeah. something to be aware of. Um, when you think of Basecamp.com, for example, there is no pop-up there. That product is so good on its own. <laughs> but they need to collect email addresses, right? Exactly. Um, moving on to something a little bit more actionable. Uh, 
So let's imagine you are a digital marketer. You've been hired by the startup or the small company, probably between like three to 10 employees. So not a lot of budget. You're the only marketer there. The product is new. The service is new. The world is your oyster. You need to do something. Um, so what would be step by step? What would be your, your, your blueprint? So the first thing I would do is what I learned from these old, like classic copywriters like Dan Kennedy and John Carlton is when they would get paid loads of money to kind of sell a product, they would just spend like two weeks talking with all the people that made and designed and built the product and also the people that bought the product so that you can try and understand like what is the one, like the hook, you can say the one thing that your product has that makes other people excited. So it wouldn't be two weeks probably, but I spent a lot of time speaking with everybody in the team who designed the product and then everybody who currently interacted or bought the product to, to really understand how your thing is better and different than every, every else. And also the one part of your product that gets people really excited. Now, once I had that, it's probably just like a paragraph in a Google document that really fully defines that. Once I had that, I would then, so I have the, I have the what, so I have the angle, I have the who, because I understand the customer now. Now it's about identifying or like listing out all of the potential acquisition channels and then prioritizing and then selecting just one to start with or two to start with and doing a small test, right? This is the, the traction book. They list out the 17 channels that any company that we use. So I start, I go through that list and I choose one or two, invest a small amount of time and money, track that, of course. Um, and then after the test in like two weeks, I'd review and then I'd invest further or test something else. So it's like, the what are you selling? So you spend time researching that. The who, spend time researching exactly who this person is. And then, so what, who, and then it's the how, like the acquisition channels. So you start testing them. That's like the process I've used for the almost every, like since I learned that process, I've used that on every other thing that I've done. And it's always, it's a methodical like scripted process that seems to work. Um, What's the process that you are using for those channels? What criteria do you use to pick them? Yeah. So there's no, you have to, all I do, right. If I go through that list of 17 and then I think about what we would potentially do or how we potentially utilize that channel. And then I would compare it against the resources that we have and the person that we're targeting, right? So if we think about Tina, I was going through that list. And I was like, we have limited resources. I'm not going to spend loads of money on AdWords now. I'm not going to go to a trade show again because of money. And plus the person that we're targeting probably is not going to be at the trade show. Um, and then I'm also don't think it's probably right to make like a crazy viral video because it's not a consumer product. Um, so it, again, I, there's nothing I can really say for that. It's like just use common sense. But you don't have to be right because you're going to test it anyway with a small amount of money and a small amount of time. So, it, yeah, it's just common sense. But don't get too stressed over it. Don't spend too much time prioritizing because you're going to test them anyway. Okay. So step one, talking to people, understanding who mm -hmm. built the product and understanding who's going to buy it. And mm -hmm. then step two, the what? Yeah, so it's like, to be honest, the who should probably come first. It's like, understanding exactly who the customer is, then it's like the what, what's the angle that you're going to use to sell. Yeah. And then it's working out the channel that you're going to use to go and sell the what to the who. Um, now let's take an example of you are a, a digital, mar a digital marketer and you're working for a much bigger company. 
right? So you have an entire department in charge of marketing or even many departments in charge of marketing. Do you think you should be a full stack marketer and just know pretty much everything about every channel? I mean, at least the basics of every channel, like SEO, social media, commercial rate optimization and all that. Or do you think I should specialize and try to specialize in at least one? How, how big is your marketing team? Let's say pretty big. Let's say you're pretty like in, in, in the likes of Google, Facebook or big companies that okay, have yeah. plenty. I think if you want to go and work in a big company, I would, to start with, get really, really good at just doing one thing and like get known for being really, really good at that one thing. And everyone's like, oh, God, he's the SEO guy. And then like you get the reputation. And then that's going to help you move up. The, way, the higher you get, the less specialized you need to be because you have someone doing that for you, right? So if, you, if you're in a big place, I would go hard on one thing and then move up and get left and then be more general. Um, if you're, if like the first example, you're the only person in marketing, you actually are going to have to be a generalist and you shouldn't let your skills bias your selection of channel too much because it might still not be the right channel. Obviously, you need to take that into account because you're going to be doing this. Um, so big company, go niche and then generalize. And then if, you, if it's just you, you're going to have to start being general. And then by the time after six months, you're going to have other people working for you anyway because you're going to do really well. How did you learn what you know now, like in, especially in marketing and how to launch stuff? It's like spending money on education. Well, no, actually, the best education is actually doing things. So in the background, like the leggings company and all those two outsourcing companies, I've probably tried or like launched 10 different projects of which the majority didn't make any money. But in order to find out that they wouldn't make any money, I had to try stuff, right? So let's give an example. The first, I think it was the first or second website I built was, it was like reviewing self-help books. And it's like the most SEO, like the, the only way you're going to make money from a con, from a blog like that is, or the only way you're going to get like an, the, the only profitable acquisition channel, I think is going to be SEO or the most profitable acquisition channel is going to be SEO for a blog, right? This website was the least SEO friendly blog you have ever seen. There's one domain and it's like JavaScript things. So every book review didn't have its own domain, right? So fucking horrible for SEO but what happened during that during me investing time in that project it didn't cost that much money it probably cost like $100 I invested time in getting good at writing connecting with authors of self-help books because I could then go and interview them and learning a little bit about SEO right now I know that with SEO like building a blog you need to like get the right pages with the right like URLs so that's just an example that's how I got good at some things is by just like throwing loads of shit against the wall and eventually something will stick. Um, instead of just like buying the course, going through the course and not actually doing anything. Uh, any, any resources that you would still recommend to people, um, who are at the start of this journey? Yeah, I think there's probably a list of blogs. That I think that you, you, it's probably every, the blog of every person you're going to interview. <laughs> like, cause I know the people, well, I know a few of the people that you're picking, and they're all like transparent guys that obviously know what they're doing. So I would get Feedly, which is like a content aggregator. And so, and then just get the blog for every person who's speaking on this podcast. And then every time they upload a new post, you'll get a little notification of Feedly. And like every day, read for 20 minutes on these blogs. And that will probably get you started. When you find someone 
that you do really resonate with the content and that their advice is working, then don't be afraid of paying them either for an hour of consulting or buying their $300 information course. Um, if you think you are, the actions you'll take after that are going to give you the ROI, right? Don't just buy it because you like them and you want to be entertained with the information. Only you make the decision, like, are you going to take enough action to get the ROI on the, on the information that you're investing in? No, I like this advice because... I think you can, you can read many books on Amazon. You can literally spend your years or, or, or like decades reading mm. books without doing anything. Um, while yeah. I think that, yes, connecting with the right people, people you admire and mm -hmm. connecting, connecting earlier on. So you don't really ask them anything apart from just, can I buy your stuff? Can I read your, yeah. your blogs? That will pay dividends in the future, right? Because let's sure. say in two years time, you're planning to launch a podcast or something. The relationship would have been built before. Exactly. They would have been yeah. you know, much inclined to The to best way to get on anyone's radar, like any influencer's radar, is to give them money first. And be like, okay, I invested in this thing. I learned this. I'm now doing this. I actually have one more question. I have one little favor to ask. You're much more likely to get that. Yeah. I think that's a great advice. Apart from, apart from all the big books out there that are like very good for like motivating you and, and finding what you really like and what you should mm -hmm. be doing, talking to people, connecting with those people who know more than we do yeah, is a great tactic. Um, sure. what do you think? So we are talking about today, but let's, let's picture ourselves like marketers in five years or 10 years. What do you think digital marketers today should learn? that will help them in five years or 10 years? In the future. Uh, the, the reason why, or one of the biggest reasons why I think I've had some success is my ability to learn how to learn, right? So no longer is there any point learning one channel really effectively because the rate at which these channels are becoming extinct is increasing. Right? So you can learn how to be really good at like Snapchat ads, but then who knows if Snapchat can be around in like 18 months. So the, the real skill is to go one level above and to actually train yourself to learn how to learn, and therefore you can become more adaptable, and then any new platform that comes along, you're more likely to get good and therefore remain relevant. So then the question is, how do you learn how to learn? And I'm racking my brains right now. And if you're like, <laughs> <laughs> there's probably Udemy courses on how to learn how to learn, but then I'm trying to think about how I learn how to learn. And maybe it's just spending a lot of time learning, right, and being aware of how you're learning. Um, yeah. Okay. One tip on learning how to learn, you, you know, there's like the four levels of like, you start when you're learning something new, so you're unconsciously incompetent. You don't know how shit you are. And then it rises all the way up to where you're like unconsciously competent. Like you don't know how good you are. You used to do it anyway. So what I've learned is that the, the, the greatest amount of learning occurs at one of these four stages. And that stage is when you are consciously incompetent. So when you're doing the thing, and you're aware of how shit you are. This is like the hardest stage, right? You're, you're writing that blog post and you're just like starting to get good or you're being aware of why you're not good. That is where the myelin, right, which is this, this thing that covers your muscles and like makes you better, like reinforces the nerve pathways to increase your skills. That's when the myelin is being formed. So it's to get to this stage as fast as you can, like when you're aware of where you're not good, unconsciously, you know, consciously incompetent and really embracing that. Um, and so whenever you then go to learn a new skill, you, you try and get to this level as fast as possible and you actually try it and sort of repeat the process in here to build the mining so you can then get up to these two quicker. So that's my one tip on how to learn how to learn. 
That's actually really good. I've never heard this angle before. I kind of heard the, you know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I know, I know, I don't know, and I know, I know. Uh, But I like this explanation as well. And I guess the the key here is really, the tip is really to learn you need to do. And you actually need to, as you said before, like throw shit on the wall and and, and let's see which one will stick. But but that's the truth. And that's how I learned. And that's Mm -hmm. how you make mistakes. And I think... I don't, I'm not trying to like be like, oh, let's all make mistakes. Yeah. Let's all like fail at everything we do, but more Mm -hmm. about it's by making those few mistakes that you will remember like that. It will really stick in your head, wouldn't it? Exactly, man. Like whenever I'm starting a blog now, I'm not going to like use those JavaScript like pop-ups. Exactly. So it goes back, it looks back to what we said at the start about how, uh, in order to sort of break out and to do something impactful, you need to not give a shit about what people think. And therefore, you have to not be afraid of the thing that you're working on, that you're investing your life into not working. Um, the only thing that's going to stop you doing that is being scared about what your girlfriend or what your brother's going to say if it fails, right? But then that term is it's just a human concept that is somewhat irrelevant anyway. I think that's a good wrap-up for the marketing part. Who else do you think I should interview next? I... I've come across some great growth hackers, um, growth hackers on marketers, right? I would, I'm trying to think about blogs that I read or like I really look forward to reading. We've mentioned Hubstaff, mentioned WP Curve. The, that guy, uh, this guy's fucking killing it. The guy from Groove, the Alex Turnbull, I think, like their blog's fucking killing it. I would get him if possible. I think he's quite accessible as well. Like get on his mailing list and then repeat reply to a mail that he sends out and it's been like Alex we're doing this let me go do you want to jump on um so I'll give him that's all I can think of for now but there's loads of, loads of people out there I'll ping you when I when I see them sure um, and I will add them to the podcast podcast notes uh I've been in touch with Alex and okay. w- while he's not free right now he seems to be quite yeah. busy he said that he would be free in the next few months so hopefully we'll get him uh in the podcast but yeah he's really nice to deal with he answers every email as i send him so really? it's quite legit <laughs> yeah man, i love they have this they have the progress bar on every blog on like the top of the blog post so the journey to 500k uh, monthly revenue right and they're like 483k it's like outrageous behavior it's great yeah like and i think i could see that on many other blogs after that I could see the exact same concept, Man. zero to yeah. 500. Many people yeah, have yeah. used it after. Like, and even, even the headline over that widget was like, ah, shit, we're going from zero to 500. Okay, I stole that. We stole that on Virtual Valley, man. Like, fair play, Alex. Yeah. He, he actually, yeah, yeah. He, he really created a movement behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Like, Tom, you've been really, really great. A lot of good concepts. I, I really like what you, what you mentioned. There's a few things that could definitely be very helpful for digital marketers. Um, where can listeners connect with you, learn more from you? Uh, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. So at Tom Hunt, I, uh, I have an opt-in, a really shit opt-in actually on my homepage. <laughs> um, TomHunt.io that is. Uh, but it'd be, be interesting to get people's feedback on that. Um, so if you Google TomHunt.io and you'll find like Twitter, homepage, or LinkedIn as well. So that's where people can find me. Great. Um, so yeah, to the listeners out there, once again, I will share the notes and all the stuff we mentioned in this podcast. Um, and I think the last thing to, uh, to say is thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. And I, as I said before, like the, probably the only reason or one of the reasons I managed to like leave the corporate world was because I was able to brainwash, brainwash myself with information like this in 2013. So there are probably other people out there that, uh, 
in the same situation. So I want to thank you, Louis, for uh, enabling their, them to leave and to do things that are more impactful. You're welcome. Take care, Tom. Thank you. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. And this is the moment where I tell you to subscribe to our email list. So before you leave and go to another podcast or listen to another episode, I don't treat email lists uh, the way people usually treat their email list. I really treat that as a, as a one-to-one conversation. So I'm going to send you very short and personal emails every two weeks, I would say. We, I'll inform you of guests in advance. I'll share with you my numbers and how many listens we get and I'll also ask you for your feedback in terms of the questions we can ask future guests and perhaps I can also uh, have you on the show uh, someday so don't be afraid to subscribe I'm not going to spam you and you can always unsubscribe for sure if you wish the second thing we need from you is your harsh and honest feedback we know that this show is not perfect yet and we always Uh, can improve so you can send us your email at feedback at everyonehatesmarketers.com good or bad please feel free to send me an email and the last thing I like uh, from you is that if you did like the episode please share it to your friends your colleagues or whoever might like it and also please review it on iTunes or another service that you might use to listen to your podcast because if you leave us a five star review it means that more people will be likely to listen and we can spread the word quicker So thank you so much once again and au revoir. That's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple uh, days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content is coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.